0: i am cut
1: episode of the Hoop Talk podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan, there's my guy Jalen.
0: What's up everybody?
1: This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. So let's get right into it. Our topic is the forgotten great teams of the Eastern Conference from the 2000s to present day. And we're going to start with the 2014-2015 Atlanta Hawks. How do you feel about this team? Do you think that this team overachieved in the season and underachieved in the playoffs?
0: So, first of all, this team is near and dear to my heart. I'm from Georgia. So, seeing this team perform the way it did, five all-stars, Paul Millsap going crazy, six guys averaging double digits, it was a great regular season. But that's kind of where it stops at. First and second round were tough-fought series, um, especially the one against the Wizards. But like you said before, I think it was one of those overachieving regular seasons and underachieving postseasons because with a team that was as deep and as team oriented as that squad was, it's kind of interesting that they always talk about like the league being ran by star power, but like that was a series that kind of just proved it all. Atlanta didn't have a single star star yes they had five all-stars but that was strictly based on like statistical performance and different things like that completely outmatched by just the combination of LeBron James and Kyrie Irving I mean that was a year where Kevin Love was still kind of underachieving I think he averaged like less than 15 points in the playoffs like during that year so they pretty much just got manhandled by two players and a couple of guys like you said before, it definitely was an overachieving regular season and it was a good field watch for 82 games, but it definitely got hectic come playoff time. I guess my question to you about this team would be, who do you feel was like the driving force of this team?
1: I, I think it has to be Kyle Korver. He became a first-time All-Star after shooting lights out from beyond the arc, just below 50%. You also had Jeff Teague, who was playing well, averaging 16-7. and 7. He, was pr- he was a pretty good defender as well. Paul Millsap, averaging 17-8, and 8, shooting fairly well from the field, 48%. He was even better from beyond the arc for his position, shooting 36%. Al Horford was playing out 15-7, and 7, and he shot uh, 54% from the field, shooting an occasional three here and there. 31% is not too bad, though, for uh, Al Horford. But if you think about Kyle Korver for a second, this guy was traded from the New Jersey Nets to the Philadelphia 76ers for a copying machine and money to fund their G League team. So you think about like how far he's come, and to, for him to be on a 60-win a squad where he was part of a, a great offense with four other names that you don't normally hear about too often – I mean, the entire team was nominated player of the month in January. <laughs> so it's actually, it's actually quite shocking to see not only how they overachieved in the season, but they later underachieved in the playoffs.
0: I think the main thing that you can take away from this team is just how team-oriented they actually were. I mean, going through the stats was actually pretty surprising looking at it, how like equally divided everybody was. I mean, Millsap stood out with 16.7 points, but outside of that spread, everybody averaged pretty much in between about 12 to 15 points per game. The other thing is that, I mean, they were top six in offensive rating, defensive rating, and opponents points per game. We know Mike Budenholzer, yes, he essentially transitioning from a Hawks team that was very team-oriented to a Bucks team that leans very heavily on Giannis, he still has that team-building mentality. And, of course, this is where he got his bearings at. But I just find it so interesting that, like, top six in defensive rating, like, who is a prime defender on this team besides maybe Al Horford at the rim? Top six in offensive rating? I mean, okay, yes, split between a multitude of players. There's a lot of guys who average double digits. But in terms of having a go-to score down the stretch, Having a post player like Paul Millsap be your primary scorer, I guess maybe this is the 2020 Jalen talking, but that would definitely not translate to right now having the big man be your primary mode of offense. And then on top of that, the opponent's points per game, like I said before, I mean, I can't think of a single true defender on this team besides maybe Al Horford or maybe uh, Damari Carroll when he was coming up on this team. So those would be the two guys that I would attribute that to, but for them to be top six in defensive rating and opponents per game, points per game, it's just interesting to see. I think another team that kind of almost fits a very similar mold to this squad is the 2004 Detroit Pistons. When you hear 2004 Detroit Pistons, what is the first thing that comes to mind?
1: First thing that comes to mind Is their five game demolition derby of the 2004 Lakers? (laughs) You want to talk about outmatching this team, outworking this team, and most importantly, out defending the Lakers? My goodness, this team, another team with no clear star, but I feel like this team is had stars for the future and they had stars to build around. I mean, their entire lineup was a Starfield lineup, and to think Darko Milicic was on this team. <laughs> like I said, no clear start. But it's crazy to think how far this team has come. Two years ago, Rick Carlisle was coaching this team, and four years ago, Grant Hill was one of their top stars. Crazy what happens in four years. This team just epitomizes defense. I think Tayshaun Prince was really known for his defense. He was a young defender. He had that chase-down block on Reggie Miller in the Eastern Conference Finals. Rasheed Wallace was there after getting picked up from Portland. He boosted up their defense. And, of course, you can't forget about Ben Wallace, who was Defensive Player of the Year in 2002 and 2003, averaging a double-double in the the postseason. You had the great defense on Jason Kidd in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference semifinals where he had zero points. You combine that with the fact that they had some great shooters in their lineup like Rip Hamilton, who was great during the season. He averaged under 18 a game, shooting 45% from the field. He definitely kind of struggled from three that season, but he really shined in the playoffs where he averaged 21 a game, shooting 45% from the field. He brought his three-point shooting percentage up to 39%. As good as Tayshaun Prince was on defense, he was equally good on the offensive side. And Chauncey Billups, Mr. Big Shot, was consistent on both sides of the floor. So I feel like this entire lineup was a team filled with stars, and you can't forget about, like, Eldon Campbell basically playing hard defense on Shaq in the finals just to get him to the free-throw line because the Pistons knew once they had Shaq at the free-throw line, he wasn't making it at that time. So there's a lot to look at with this team and how underrated they really are because they took down a team with four all-stars. If you think about it, Carl Malone, Shaq, Kobe, Gary Payton, a team that was basically going to be formidable for the near future and a team that just was about to win four, four finals or four uh, championships until they ran to the Pistons.
0: And I think, like, playing off your championship take in terms of that, we have to also remember, like, what really makes this Detroit Pistons squad underrated is the fact that they almost went back to back. Because we have to remember the year right after, they were pretty much picking up right where they left off. And if it weren't for losing in game seven against the Spurs, I mean, we would be talking about the Pistons going back to back again after already having done it beforehand, back and during the Isaiah Thomas years earlier on in the franchise's history. So I think one of the bigger things about the team when you look at them is. They were a squad that, although, like you said before, they may have not had a star. The interesting thing about it is they definitely had championship pedigree or championship mentality. Like you said, Ben Walls was a dog, pure dog as a shot blocker. Rick Hamilton, which, like I said before, like you said before, was a dynamic scorer for them. And the interesting thing about him is just the fact that he was the go-to scorer on the team, on a team that is so defensive minded like to average near 20 points on a team that focuses more so on just keeping you up below 80 shoot for them below 70 low key for him to average 20 point nearly 20 points a game like it's just kind of ridiculous and like like what we were saying with the the Atlanta Hawks it truly was a team effort from top down one through five putting up buckets Rasheed Wallace and Ben Wallace like you said beforehand, averaging double figures and points, but also averaging near double-doubles for both of them. Because, you know, sometimes Ben Wallace would float around 10 points, but he could never seem to get over that threshold sometimes. So I think what's just so interesting about it is just the pedigree that they had, the emphasis on defense that they had, and like the ability to take five guys and shut down alpha scorers like Shaq and, like, a growing into himself Kobe Bryant.
1: What's most forgotten about this team was Ben Wallace. This was was a huge, huge help for their defense, and I don't really know if anyone could really replace a guy like Ben Wallace trying to protect the rim for this Detroit squad. Speaking of a team that made the finals in back-to-back years, the 2002-2003 New Jersey Nets. Jalen, do you think that Jason Kidd was the clear star on this team?
0: I have to say yes, honestly. I feel like, I mean, like, let's, let's go down the roster of guys that would be quote-unquote notables. Kenyon Martin still coming into his own out of Cincinnati. Richard Jefferson literally entering his sophomore year by this point, um, entered sophomore season at this point in terms of the league a 100-year-old Dikembe Mutombo low-key, uh, 11 years deep into um his NBA career. Out of everybody on the team, I feel like Jason Kidd was the one who was established but still had the means to be able to provide for this team on a regular basis. I mean, he also was the leading scorer, so I mean, that's something to take into account. But I think the main thing that we should take away from Jason Kidd's contributions to this team more so than anything is what he's done for his career as a facilitator. Jason Kidd once was acing Kid because he never had a J. There was a point where he was not necessarily a shooter and more of a distributing player that, you know, seemed to always get the sneaky 20 points off of fast break uh, layups and quick little like drive to the basket buckets and dump downs, things like that. So I think the biggest thing about this team was although they were so dynamic offensively through his his ability to distribute the ball, I think the fact that he was able to keep all these athletes at bay and allow them to thrive at what they do without getting too out of their own body is what really made this team go.
1: Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I think he was probably the heart of this team. And he was also... I think, like I said earlier, he was the clear star, unlike the last two teams we talked about. There really wasn't, like, a clear star on either of these teams. But when you look at the New Jersey Nets, Jason Kidd was a star who was established. I mean, he also turned into an all-star that season, averaging 19-9. and nine. And then you had some potential with a young core, of Richard Jefferson, Kenyon Martin, Kerry Kittles. You also had some nice match off the bench from their sixth man, Lucius Harris. Unfortunately, they picked up Matumbo, which was a solid addition, but struggled with injuries. And not to mention, a younger Jason Collins was left basically to struggle against Tim Duncan. Matumbo needed to be a strong inside presence to defend the rim, but the problem was he only played 24 games that season and he was hurt with a wrist injury. Jason Collins was unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was defending against a future Hall of Famer and a phenomenal power forward in Tim Duncan. And they traded Todd McCulloch in the previous season for the same issue because he was getting bullied in the paint by Shaq when New (laughs) Jersey was getting when New Jersey was getting swept in the finals that year. So obviously Matumbo was not the answer. They didn't even get their answer until the following season when they acquired Alonzo Mourning. So it's and then he wasn't even able to play that year. So they've all, I feel like they've always had this big man issue where you couldn't really find big men that were healthy or could defend Shaq and Tim Duncan. And it's just ridiculous to see a team that had this much talent struggle in the finals because of their lack of a true five.
0: And I think it's funny that you touch on that because I feel like, ironically enough, the Brooklyn Nets still have that issue. It's 2020, and I still feel that issue. Although they picked up Nicholas Claxton – um, in this past year draft, and I really think that he's going to be a big development project for them that if he turns into the guy that they need could take them to the next level. They really have two centers who are the split version of the full center that you want. They have Jared Allen, who yes, is known as a shot blocker and as a primary defender down low under the rim, but you know the dude can't seem to put the ball in the basket or is not a true threat to score, kind of like a Rudy Gobert type. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's DeAndre Jordan, who is pretty much just known for catching lobs and bodies, but can't really defend very well against the better big men, and is more of like, like a run gun style center, even in his upper age, where he's a little bit more accustomed to you know, being in fast breaks, running the floor, and like playing above the rim. So I think it's interesting that they still kind of have that issue, and it kind of, shows where the franchise's thought process has always been in terms of their dependence on the point guards and in general kind of just the backcourt to provide the stability for the team. But like you were saying, and I like the passion behind just how much you feel that they kind of let the season slip through their fingers because, I mean, this was a team – that I mean had a very very dynamic offense I mean we're talking about I mean in terms of like putting up points they were 14th in points but somehow athletic enough to hold people to 90.1 points per game and then on top of that they were 18th in offensive rating which sounds really interesting with their athletes but they were first in defensive rating what's really interesting about it is that you would think with all their dynamic athletes, they would be ranked higher. You would think that with all their dynamic athletes, they would have gotten further along in terms of, I mean, in terms of the finals, you would have thought that was their year, essentially. And so to see that they were actually more of a defensive team and more of a five-man out, Type of squad in terms of being able to play one on one against your man. It's kind of interesting because everything that the stats say about their team is the opposite of everything that you thought you saw on film. It's a complicated thing when it comes to the Nets. And I feel like they've always kind of never gotten to get their break. I mean, whether it was the Jason Kidd years or the Darren Williams years, which were huge as well. And then kind of in recent memory, how they kind of like started to rebuild things after that. Drastic trade with the Boston Celtics. So it's just one of those franchises that seems to always, similar to what you said with Jason Collins, almost kind of be in the wrong place at the wrong time, unfortunately. And this was one of those years where it just did not hit for them.
1: What's so sad about this team was the potential. Jason Kidd was the clear star, Richard Jefferson was definitely, was definitely part of a young supporting cast with Kenya Martin and Kerry Kittles. And you talk about a guy who they let slip away, Kerry Kittles to the Clippers. They really they, they let him walk away because they didn't want to offer him anything. It's kind of sad to see this team kind of fall apart. But at the same time, they actually were able to do fairly well in the next couple seasons considering Alonzo Mourning was healthy. And they drafted a nice young center, uh, Kerstich, out of uh, Serbia. They also picked up Vince Carter in later years. So, I mean, I feel, I feel like they have multiple chances to really make a run in the Eastern Conference. So, speaking of making a run in the Eastern Conference, let's talk about the 2013 Pacers. So, this was a team with an up-and-coming superstar and two big men that were about as a formidable duo as Al Horford and Paul Millsap. Jalen, how do you feel about the 2013 Pacers?
0: So first off, we have to put something in in retrospect for the viewers. I think that out of all the four teams, I think something that if it hasn't been noticed already, I want to put it out on Front Street now. We have picked all Eastern Conference teams. And I think that's important to highlight because over the last decade, especially, there's been this growing narrative of the weak East, the weak East. It is not always been like this where it seems like the bottom half of the league has kind of dropped off this has been a competitive division for a long time and has had a lot of teams come out and really represent for the conference as a whole and I think that the fact that we have all these teams in this segment only goes to show how many of them get undermined by the fact that typically the Western Conference teams have started ever since the Jordan years kind of passed over, the Western Conference has started to kind of dominate in terms of winning the finals. And that tends to get a lot of these teams swept under the rug. But going back to your um, question about the Pacers, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, man, this boy Paul George was taking the team over (laughs) because – this was a team that, I mean, it was pretty much Danny Granger's team at first. I mean, he was averaging anywhere between 17 and 20 points per game coming into, this, coming into his year. And, of course, he had got hurt around this time, which made things difficult on him. But for Paul George, I mean, completely coming into his own on this team. Out of Fresno State, three years in, and, I mean, he's already putting up 21.7 points per game. rebounds, three and a half assists, dang near two steals per game. I mean, he was all over the place. This was where the ascendance started. And I think what makes this team so underrated is they just got caught up in the, geez, I have to play the big three Miami Heat every year. And you play this team year after year after year in terms of anywhere between, you know, the Eastern Conference semifinals or the Eastern Conference finals. And no matter how close you get, they seem to have always been out talented. Um, they had guys, like you said beforehand, like you said beforehand, in terms of teams like Detroit or teams like Atlanta, they had their own set of great big men. Roy Hibbert, before he started to fall off, was kind of similar to Ben Wallace in a way. Because I gotta Ben Wallace is different. But in a way, in terms of being a dynamic shot blocker, David West. 15 and in is cash money pretty much for him around this time. And Lance, make you dance, Stevenson wasn't making people dance just yet, but he was growing into his own in terms of putting the ball in the basket. So I just think this team had an overall like hard body dynamic to it that could stand up to the heat, but they just kept getting out talented. And I think that's just made things difficult. My question to you on a team like this is, Who is a more interesting name that you see on this roster? Andrew Bynum or Evan Turner? That's my real question. That's a good one,
1: though. Um, More interesting would be Andrew Bynum. I say Andrew Bynum just because I remember him more from his time in the Lakers and the Sixers. I mean, you and I were talking about this when we were brainstorming. For this episode a couple weeks ago, you were surprised that Andrew Bynum was even on this team. I was I was looking at this team like, oh, okay, I I kind of know Andrew Bynum's on the Pacers. You were like, Andrew Bynum's on the Pacers? <laughs> he's he's a very surprising name. But um much like Bynum, Evan Turner kind of reminds me of his days with the Sixers. I just think that with those two guys, especially I mean Bynum seems like a nice compliment for Roy Hibbert, but at the same time, like Evan Turner was a nice compliment for Paul George when he needed to come out. So you had really two decent compliments coming off the bench. Whenever Paul George and Roy Hibbert needed to come off. I think what's crazy. You did mention how Paul George was becoming a superstar. He averaged 22 and seven rebounds shooting 42% from the field and 36% from beyond the arc. It's crazy because this almost foreshadowed what he would become in later years with the same team in the Pacers, and then he would later move on to go to Oklahoma City, and then he would go to the Clippers. And then you said Danny Granger. This was his team, but you talk about a guy who completely declined. He went from superstar to decent contributor. Like he, <laughs> he was He was injured most of the season. He only played 29 games, but it felt like there were points that season where when he came off the bench, it looked like the old Danny Granger, and it's just unfortunate because he, he could have been a great piece in helping them win the championship if he wasn't injured, but if you think about what they were lacking in offense, they may have for it on defense. I mean, they were first in defensive rating, and the formidable front court that they had with Roy Hibbert and David West, two of the best at their position that season. That's something that people don't normally take into, take into consideration considering Roy Hibbert kind of fell off and David West is known more for his time with Golden State and New Orleans rather than the Pacers. True. But I don't know. I think if this team had not faced the Miami Heat, I feel like they could have gone to the finals.
0: I don't really disagree with that, but I think your point about Danny Granger, like being, a, being more of a contributor, changing the dynamic around it, is really a huge one. Because, I mean, we're talking about a potential scoring tandem at the wing position I'm, max kellerman on espn has this overall assumption or overall take about what it takes to win a championship and the main contributors of a championship team is having two dynamic two-way wings although granger may not necessarily be a two-way wing i do feel like he was more of a dynamic scoring option for them earlier on in his career I feel like Paul George's ability to play one through three, at least at that time, I think it's expanded a bit in this game to the point that he can stretch out and play against some of the small ball fours. But in this stage of um, his career, it was more one through three. I think that really gave him an opportunity that Granger didn't necessarily swing on or did not, due to his injury, get to capitalize on. And I think that's what really hurts about this team when you look back at them, because that could have really changed things for them in terms of a series with the Heat where, you know, you're only one or two games away from going to the finals and it could simply be as something as getting a bucket down the stretch that they just didn't, didn't necessarily have the offensive threats to provide. Especially with guys like George Hill, that team does always come up small during the playoffs for whatever reason. I feel like Granger would have made up in areas where some of their other guards may have, Lacked, and that would have given them a lot better chance. Out of the four teams, this is actually the team that I would say is the most underrated because out of the four teams, I would say they're the ones who truly ran into a buzzsaw that showed the difference between their team and like a team that is truly built by the front office, like <laughs> with, you know, checkbook in hand. So, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, this team right here is just crazy. And like you were saying with, like, certain players like Andrew Bynum, who I just didn't know, I think that's what makes them even more underrated is just some of the players that they even have on this team. Luis Scola is another one who was definitely a dynamic scorer back when he was playing for the Rockets. These are certain names that we see on their roster that just didn't do what we're used to seeing them do. And it's pretty disappointing, honestly.
1: Yeah, you almost kind of expected more from this team considering they had 54 wins. And, like, they, they were definitely coming into their own. It was still a fairly young team, too. And I, I think they had a lot of potential with Paul George and Danny Granger just needed to be healthy. This was, I think this was the right time for him to be healthy because they, they definitely could have used the guy like Danny Granger for this series. You threw this question out to me last episode, and I'm going to throw this question to you. Which team, even though the Pistons won the championship in 2004, which team do you feel like could have won the championship?
0: I genuinely feel like if we were to take the Pistons out, I feel like it would have to be the the Pacers still. I have to stick with them because I have to say that out of all the teams in here, if we're excluding the Pistons who pretty much almost went back-to-back back as it is, this is the team that I felt like truly was built top to bottom to win a championship and I feel like If we're taking things like injury out of the factor and we're taking things like true potential into consideration, give me a healthy Danny Granger. Give me an Andrew Bynum who can truly contribute minutes alongside Roy Hibbert. I think those two players alone, you can throw Luis Scola in there as playing a little bit better in terms of providing behind David West. Give me those two to three players at a more consistent clip or at, per, at least provide a little bit more than what they did. And I think that they could have taken down those Miami Heat teams at least one of those years. And that's all they need for the history of this team's dynamic to be seen in a different light. So I would have to go with the Pacers, honestly.
1: I would have to disagree. I think I have to go with the Atlanta Hawks. If we have to exclude the Pistons, because the Pistons were actually my – initial pick but I have to go with the Atlanta Hawks if you think about how underrated this team really was I mean 60 wins in the season you think about not a star name on this team and then you had some help coming off the bench with a young Dennis Schroeder Tabo Sefalosha was giving you nice minutes and playing good defense you had a young Kent Bazemore on there as well I think this team was a mixture of it was a mixture of defensive stars and very good shooters. Jeff Teague's not really like an underrated scorer, but I think he was playing well this year, and he was also like a pretty good defender this year as well. And like I said earlier with Kyle Korver, I mean, he was this. This was basically his best season in the NBA. Like he was, this is the true definition of what a sharpshooter is. He was shooting fifty percent, or just below fifty percent, from beyond the arc, and as well as from the field, he was shooting below fifty percent. And then if I had to pick a more formidable front court duo, I'd probably have to take Paul Millsap and Al Horford over Roy Hibbert and David West. You, you count the fact that Paul Millsap and Al Horford kind of had a shot, like a, mid, a shot from the mid-range and a shot from beyond the arc. I would have to take that because it kind of makes them well-rounded big men, especially like in this time. And then you think about how Damari Carroll was a nice contributor on the floor. He was able to get a nice payday next season from his play in the 2014-2015 season. So he was able to really, like, make a name for himself. And I feel like this is another one where if they didn't run into LeBron and injuries, like consistent nagging injuries to Horford and Corver and Millsap and Teague and Cephalosha, I think this team could have beaten LeBron.
0: I definitely think you have a point out of the fact that also one thing that I almost didn't even account for was, again, what I had said earlier was outside of LeBron and Kyrie, they really didn't have anybody providing for that team. So actually, that might almost be a better pick. The only reason why I think I leaned towards the Pacers was just because I have a lot more faith in the big men they have off the bench combined with the starters that they had if they're playing to their full potential. But I don't think the Hawks is a bad take at
1: all. All right. So we will see you on the next episode of the Hoop Talk podcast, where we talk about the great underrated stars from the 2000s to present day.